The following podcast contains descriptions of rape, sexual abuse, and murder. Listener discretion is advised. Previously on Families Who Kill, the Donut Shop Murders. I'm looking at Sherman about that time. He brought the gun up. Well, when he did, I brought mine up. We both just shot at the same time. Boom, boom. There's a question of who pulled the trigger first. Gacy, Ted Bundy, son of Sam. They pick out a certain kind of victim, a signature to every single crime they commit. They're similar. They're similar fact transactions. And that's exactly what these guys did. And I looked around, and there comes Sherman through the door, and I just looked around and I pulled out my gun. And uh, she looked and started laughing. I told her, this ain't no toy, girl. When he got to my feet, he starts grinning because I got the pistol. Because by then, I got the pistol right glued on him. And I'm no bad shot. I got the gun right dead on him. And I told him, I said, Dennis, put down that shotgun. And he's looking at me grinning. And in my mind, the only thing I can do, I got to shoot this dude because he's going to kill me. And the minute I give him plenty of time to bring the shotgun around, and the minute he started leveling down, I popped the cap. Hit him right over the right eye. The 1970s. The era of some of the most heinous serial killers of all time. Charles Manson, Ted Bundy, the Zodiac Killer, and the McCrary family. Violent, nasty, and they didn't care about anything other than gratifying their own base desires. Though little known today, they were one of the most murderous families in history. Led by a psychopathic patriarch and his depraved son-in-law. Sherman was a small-time screw-up. Carl was a small-time screw-up. When these guys got together, there was a chemistry between them. And then at some point, they walked into that Winchell's Donut Shop in Salt Lake City and saw Sherry Martin. And just robbing the donut shop became, let's take the girl. They roamed the country robbing, raping, and killing up to 22 people in 1971 and 72. Most of them, very young women. You're about to hear their story, raw and ruthless. And we'll hear, for the first time, exclusive prison recordings of one of the killers, as he tells all. I've been on this ride alone. Sun goes down, I howl and moan. And I know the cries of fellow aching souls. I need something to come. A scent I track that leads me on. And I show my teeth. Cause time has made me cold. From Wondery and Trooper Entertainment, this is Families Who Kill, The Donut Shop Murders. My eyes are closed, my eyes are closed. February 19th, 1972, Portland, Oregon. We pick up where we left off at the end of episode four with the abduction of Cynthia Glass from a convenience store on South Terwilliger Boulevard. Here's Carl's description of what happened. 
Remember that in Carl's version of events, he constantly deflects blame on Sherman, exonerating himself of the disgusting crimes he and Sherman committed together. The following is a voice actor recreating Carl's confession. I thought I've gotten Sherman off this kidnap kick, and, you know, I don't have to worry about that. So this particular night, I'm not even thinking. If I'd been thinking right, I think. I might have hesitated, but I wasn't thinking like I should have been. And uh, it's kind of raining. Unless, like I say, like I say, I created this situation uh, unconsciously. The store itself sits kind of out of the way. Nothing around it is open. I stopped. I went in to get some cigarettes. And the thought struck me when I walked through the door. She was in there by herself. And I thought, oh, God damn, it's going to be a repeat. Repeat is how Carl referred to the serial nature of their murders. I looked around, and there comes Sherman through the door. And I just looked around, and I pulled out my gun. And uh, she looked and started laughing. I told her, this ain't no toy, girl. And she looked a hell of a lot younger than she was. I think she was about 25 years old. And at that time, there ain't no way she looked over 25. Well, she was a hippier than the day is long. And she's laughing like hell. Now I told her, now this ain't no toy. She said, I know it's not a toy. She said, you know, she said, when you drove up, she said, I thought in my mind you were gonna rob me. And I said, is that right? So I said, let's not sit around here all night talking about it then. So she put all the money in a sack, you know, and Sherman tells her, get your coat. She looked around at him and she said, okay. She walked out the door and the car we got. Well, I don't know what Sherman was thinking, but this is one of the few times I've ever seen him laugh. Uh, I've seen him laugh a few other times, but this ain't no time to be laughing. And it seems he was laughing at the wrong time, but he was laughing going to the car. He said, I don't believe it. I just don't believe it. And uh, she just opened the door and jumped in, you know, and we rattled off 90 miles an hour, you know. And uh, she put her hand in her purse. She comes up with a couple of joints. I don't know, well, what I'll do. Well, she lit up a joint. She's driving along, and she's getting higher than a Georgia pine. Sherman's sitting there shaking his head, you know. This is the one time, I think, that it's getting to him because she was so non-concerned about the whole damn thing. And uh, she asked me, you know, she said, you married? I said, no. She asked Sherman, you married? He said, no. No, he said. So we're driving along and talking, you know, and we're getting near Washington. So we went on across into Washington, back up to the other side of, uh, of Woodland, back up in the mountains. And this was another prolonged engagement. We were up there quite a while, messing with her. I don't know, I fully believe I didn't know whether Sherman was thinking about shooting her or not. Uh, she was sitting in the car and me and and Sherman was out standing out there talking and he said, what do you think? And I told him, we gotta cool it. I think she's cool. I said, she'll go walking off this mountain and ain't nobody gonna pay it to any attention to her. He says, that's what I was thinking too. 
So we sit around there for a few minutes talking. And I went to the back seat, I opened the back door, and I had my gun. Sherman is standing in front of the car, and I didn't know he had his gun under his arm. And he was just standing there like that. And uh, she's standing between us. Sherman looked at me and said, nope, just can't do it. Then he looked at her, and the gun come up from under his arm. So I raised mine up, and she didn't say a word. Sherman just kind of chuckled. As soon as I saw what was happening, cat popped. And I shot her before she hit the ground. I think she was only shot twice. After we killed the girls, we never talked about it. We said nothing and rode along in the car and just tried to ignore it and head back into town. Over the past two episodes, we've been relating the saga of a family who, in some ways, had a similar journey to the McCrary Taylors. It happened exactly 100 years before Carl and Sherman walked into the Winchell's Donut Shop in Salt Lake City and left with Sherry Martin. We're talking about the Bender family, a.k.a. the Bloody Benders, who killed at least 12 weary travelers who came through their inn in Lebec County, Kansas in 1871 and 1872. Like the McCrary Taylors, the Bender family killed as a coordinated unit and had a consistent M.O., killing their victims ruthlessly with a hammer blow to the skull. They also robbed their victims and, like the McCrary Taylors, killed over an 18-month period before their spree spiraled out of control. When we left off in episode four, we learned that the Bender's quaint seeming inn was not the safe haven for travelers that it pretended to be. Now we bring the family's bizarre and harrowing tale to an end. With the help of writer Michael Frizzell and investigative writer and producer Niall Capello. The real end started to happen when um, deaths and disappearances started to be uh, reported. Now, the state is kind of a lawless part at this point. There were a lot of people coming through the area that were meeting a grisly end. The area was known for horse thieves and vigilantes and vigilante arrests and these sorts of things. So there's a lot of people under suspicion. There's a lot of tension, but no one really knows what's happened. And then we get to the winter of about 1872, and George Newton Longcorn and his infant daughter Mary Ann leave Independence, Kansas. Their plan was to resettle in Iowa, and they just disappeared on their way to Iowa. The only logical stop between Independence and and the border would have been this area of Lebec County. As you start to try to depict how they would have traveled up north to Iowa, it does look like they would have been part of the Osage Trail. So that's where the a former neighbor, Dr. William Henry York, goes looking for them. York's concerned. They've been gone for a while. He hasn't heard any messages from them. So he gets on his horse and decides to retrace their steps. And this is where things start to go really south, not only for York, but for the Bender family themselves. Um, York reaches Fort Scott, Kansas on March 9th, and he starts to think, well, okay, I've lost their trail. I don't know what's happening. I'm just going to go back to Independence. Then he never gets back. The problem was that York's got two brothers. He's got Ed York, who lives in Fort Scott. That's where he's staying. And Colonel Alexander York, who is a Civil War veteran with 
Well, a lot of anger issues, and Colonel York decides he's going to retrace the steps of his brother, who went in search of George Newton Longcore, to find out what happened. And he had started to hear some stories. A woman fled the inn, the Bender Inn, afraid of Elvira Bender and her daughter because they brandished knives and, and were speaking gibberish. And he thought, this story sounds kind of strange. Um, the Benders had always denied that there was any problems. But you know what? He keeps hearing these stories about people stopping at the Bender Inn and never leaving. And so he decides he's going to stop by. So York travels to the Bender Inn. He wants to meet the proprietor herself. He sits down, has a chat with her. Everything seems fine. Kate, maybe not. She's starting to feel a little bit of tension. It is likely Colonel York suspected that. He asks her to meet him later. And he brings a bunch of armed men with him to the inn. And he finds they're gone. A young man named Billy Toll was driving his cattle past the Bender property, and he senses something wrong. Something's quiet. Several days had passed since York's visit, and he starts to discover that just no one is there. Nothing is completely empty. Everything was gone. So York arrives, and so does half the town. Because now what we've got is this giant story of murders and mayhem. A proclamation is put out by the state of Kansas. $2,000 reward for the four of them as they start to search the area for what might have happened to the benders. As the legend of the bloody benders began to spread across the country, tourists and souvenir hunters flocked to the bender property. Um, they basically looted the homestead down to taking the bricks from the cellar and the stone lining the well. Hammers, allegedly from the home, have been displayed at the local Perryville Museum, while stained knife that was thought to be taken from the Bender Inn now belongs to the Kansas Historical Society. To this day, if you travel around Kansas as a mother and daughter, someone might accuse you of being Kate and Elvira Bender. The women, like the legend itself, remained immortal in their infamy. Fortune hunters were literally tearing the place apart and reselling pieces because this was now a big national story. They had noticed that when they were there that there was a bad odor. A trace of the trap door underneath the bed nailed shut. When they opened it, there was an empty room. The description of that room that we talked about earlier was about six feet deep and seven feet wide and about three feet tall. And it had clotted blood on the floor and stone slabs that were sledgehammers. In fact, as they started to tear things apart, they started to dig in the garden and in the orchard where they saw soil that seemed to be loose. And that's when they started to find the body. They found Dr. York's body buried face down with his feet barely below the surface of the earth. And they found nine other graves. They found seven or nine more graves that next day. And then they found the body of the young daughter, Marianne, of George Newton Longcore. Marianne was likely buried alive with her father. And the reason that they believed that was because she had soil in her mouth and lungs. The horror of what had happened caused the entire town to kind of shut down. York went on a tear. 
Colonel York, trying to figure out exactly who knew what and when. And the young man who had been romancing Kate Bender, who owned the general store, Brockman, they actually tried to hang him until he confessed that he knew more. He actually survived it. Uh, surviving a hanging, quite remarkable for the time. So the popular story goes that Paul Bender and the small posse with Colonel York hunted down and killed the Benders and buried them out in a field somewhere. <laughs> Where? Well, we know that the, the wagon was found some miles away. At least they surmised it was the Bender's wagon shot full of holes. So the popular theory is that they hunted them down. And when they got them, they shot them up and then buried them. You know, I think the main thing that struck me about the McCrary's and its similarity to the Benders is this family crime ring dynamic where, you know, in the McCrary family, you have the two men and the two women, you have the kids, you know, they are, as you said, this murder machine where they have it really down to a science and they're going to these different places and they're killing. Um, and, the, and the family dynamic is really powerful. You know, it's the same reason that people join cults. It's the same reason that people commit mass suicide. I mean, peer pressure and just the idea of being in an environment with other people that you trust who are telling you that this is okay and this is the right thing to be doing is, is an incredibly powerful force that really shouldn't be discredited. And so I think that like that to me is, you know, a, an important part of both of the, you know, the McCrary families and the Bender family. This concludes our retelling of the haunting story of the Bloody Benders. Sherry Martin, Leora Looney, Forrest and Jenna Covey, Liz Perryman, Susan Shaw, Cynthia Glass, seven victims, many of them raped, all of them shot to death with matching ballistics, had gone from being seemingly isolated incidents to a pattern of repetitive serial killing, the work of a savagely dangerous family on the loose. And as we'll learn later, they were up to 15 other victims who seemed to fit the McCrary Taylor's MO as well. How did Carl and Sherman get away with this for so long across so many states? One thing police point out is that the family was traveling as a big unit with wives and kids and grandkids, a way less suspicious looking bunch than if it were just the skeevy looking Carl and Sherman traveling alone. The highway itself was their greatest weapon, creating constant confusion among the police as the McCrary seemed everywhere and nowhere at once. But across the country, people's awareness of the family's misdeeds was growing by the day as major newspapers pasted the story on cover after cover. Here's Detective Joe Fanchuli of the Lakewood Police in Colorado, who eventually took the McCrary's down. The case got a lot of notoriety in November of 72 after the supermarket robbery, after these guys were arrested, after we got them back to Colorado. I mean, there there were headlines in all the major newspapers. Uh, some of them I still have. Some of them I'm not sure where they are. I mean, the, 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 the L.A. Times, the, the full-page headline, they called them the full moon murderers, uh, you know, family that murdered up to 22 people. New York Daily News, the, the tabloid paper, full-page headline, Moonlight Murderers. Meanwhile, as awareness of the family grew, law enforcement agencies across state lines escalated their efforts to find these so-called Moonlight Murderers. Here's Anya and Kevin. Fortunately, the McCrary Taylors did not 
sort of go under the radar with law enforcement. I think pretty quickly, even though these crimes were happening in different jurisdictions, uh, folks in these states started to realize that there was a series of killings going on that were linked, even though they were far away geographically. And that meant that people were working together pretty early on. Dallas County Sheriff Clarence Jones calling for a multi-day seminar and inviting like 40 investigators from California, Colorado, Texas, and Utah to all come together and sort of like just put unsolved murders in their jurisdictions on the table and seeing if any would actually fit the series that these states were experiencing. And uh, that also meant that the FBI was coming in early. Uh, the FBI is obviously called in when crimes cross state lines, and that was definitely happening here. So they were on board and they were providing the technology and the forensic capabilities that they can provide sometimes that smaller agencies might lack. So um, I, I'd say in general, this was generating a lot of heat. Uh, people were working together. I'm not going to say that everything went smoothly. I don't, I obviously the, the killers, uh, you know, unfortunately ended up racking up quite a high body count, uh, even, uh, even though they weren't operating for that long. But this is not a situation where somebody was crossing state lines and police were just not paying attention to it or saying, eh, that's not related. I'm sure that's different. Uh, this, this kind of was on the radar quite fast. The various strains of the hunt for Carl and Sherman began to coalesce in the fall of 1971 as different agencies started to connect the men's police sketches to murders in Utah, Colorado, and Texas. In a first notice of its kind, the Texas Department of Public Safety issued what's called a Traveling Criminals Bulletin, alerting police in several territories to the McCrary Taylors, what they look like, how they operate, where and how they might strike next. Here's Detective Joe Fanciulli of the Lakewood PD again. Traveling Criminals Bulletin was something that was produced by some part of the Texas Department of Public Safety. Which, which would be similar to the Colorado Bureau of Investigation in Colorado. It's, it's something that was produced, um, you know, whenever there was information to put out. Uh, but you're, you're, again, remember, you're talking about night, the summer of 1972. Stuff got mailed. There, weren't, there was no computers. There was no internet. Um, these, these things were mailed around. So they would have been mailed to a counterpart agency i.e. the Colorado Bureau of Investigation, and um, that's how it made its way to Lakewood. My recollection, it was a legal-sized sheet of paper, black and white, uh, had some mugshots on it, and, and then it just said, these people may have been involved in these crimes. Salt Lake City, Lakewood, Colorado, Mesquite, Texas, Lubbock, Texas, but no reason why. But the important thing was, is that when that came to us, we knew those people because we had warrants for their arrest for the check cases. And then, you know, as I've said this many times before, it was like the, the light came on, the sky opened up. These are the people.
The sketches in Texas's bulletin immediately lined up with the ones out of Lakewood, Colorado, from the Mr. Donut where Leora Looney was taken. We had those renderings that were done uh, by a Denver PD sketch artist. And I mean, that was that was another piece of it. When that bulletin came out with the mugshots on it, you could lay those mugshots next to those artist renderings. And I mean, Carl was Carl and Sherman was Sherman. They were that good. And all of that came from a couple of witnesses uh, who came into the donut shop and left while Carl and Sherman were sitting there before the before they took Leora out of the out of the store. The fervor ignited by Texas's traveling criminals bulletin actually prompted the first arrest in the case as police collared a man named Everett Clifton Harris from Tucani, Texas for the Covey and Shaw murders. 17 witnesses pegged him as the man they had seen near the scenes of those abductions. He was the spitting image of Sherman McCrary. But once they had Harris in custody, police knew they had the wrong guy. Harris was hobbled with a serious injury and heavier than Sherman, and none of his prints matched the ones found at the scene of the Leora Looney abduction. Despite the misfire, it was a step forward for investigators. They knew what Sherman looked like. They just had to find him. Meanwhile, as police intensified their search for the McCrary Taylors, the family proceeded unabated, expanding their killing spree into Kansas, Georgia, and Florida. However, outside the seven murders we've explored, Sherman and Carl adamantly denied involvement in any others in which they were suspected. Now, it's axiomatic among investigators that if criminal suspects think police have solid evidence against them for a given crime, these suspects only want to talk about what they believe police already know. And at this point, there was still a lot the cops didn't know. Right now, we're going to discuss some of the many other murders Carl and Sherman are believed to have committed beyond the primary seven in the fall of 71 and 72. They all bear the hallmarks of a quote, donut shop murder MO and have Carl and Sherman written all over them. Warning, what you're about to hear is violent and graphic. Anya and Kevin of the murder sheet are going to walk us through it. These investigators, when they got together, they, they, they created a list of the murders in their jurisdictions, which they felt fit the M.O. of these potential serial killers. And some of these murders were subsequently admitted to by McCrary and Taylor. Others were not. Others they denied involvement in. Of course, McCrary and Taylor don't really have a heck of a lot of credibility. These are bad men. These are liars. I don't really care if they claim to not have killed some of these people because... They, uh, they were by no means honest and would <laughs> lie to get out of anything. So I don't know. Some of these, to me, really seem like clear McCrary-Taylor cases. Why don't you tell me about one that you feel is a very strong candidate to be a McCrary-Taylor crime? Yes, I'll say before we get into this, I am 99% certain, maybe 99.9% .9 certain, that these two men were the perpetrators of this particular crime. It happened on November 30th, 1971, uh, in Florida. Uh, the victims were Bobby Turner, her uh, business partner, Patricia Marr, and Bobby's daughter, uh, Valerie, who's only 16. And this is a very sad case. Basically, Bobby and Patricia operated a place called Nell's Beauty Shop. And it was on this rural, out of, out of the middle of nowhere road between Keystone Heights and Melrose in Florida. 
And customers came in one day to find that the two women, Bobby Turner and Patricia Marr, had been shot just totally viciously. Their bodies were in the storeroom, uh, just riddled with bullets. And uh, Valerie was unfortunately nowhere to be seen. And then a witness came forward. The witness was a man named Lloyd Beckton. And Lloyd was a truck driver. And as it happened, he'd been sitting in his truck in the parking lot just outside of this beauty shop. And he saw three people come out marching single file, two men and one girl. And one of the men had his hand in his coat, almost like he was concealing a gun. So basically what Lloyd was witnessing was the abduction of Valerie. Of course, Lloyd did not know that at the time. These, this party of three got into a blue Chevrolet and they wanted to leave, but Lloyd was blocking them. So he moved his truck, allowing the car with the three to leave. Again, Lloyd had no idea what was going on. Had no idea of knowing that he had just facilitated the ability of these men to commit murder. Months later, the, the skeletized remains of Valerie were found in the woods, and sometime after that, in court, Lloyd positively identified one of the men he saw that day as Carl Taylor. So why am I so certain that McCrary and Taylor committed these crimes? Well, there's a witness who identifies Taylor as the man he saw at the scene doing the abduction. There's two men kidnapping a young girl at gunpoint from a business. I think that they encountered three women in the store. Three seemed like too many to take at once, so they killed two and took the youngest one because maybe they felt she'd be easiest to control. And, you know, it's a heinous case. They do heinous things. This this seems pretty cut and dry that it would be them. Um, Florida's a bit far away, but it's not that far away. And this uh, Nell's Beauty Shop sounded exactly like the kind of business that they'd be targeting. This is in the middle of nowhere, if people are screaming and there's no customers in the store, nobody can hear you. No help is coming. So um, to me, this seems very, very clearly a McCrary Taylor uh, operation, unfortunately. I would agree. There's a pretty strong case against them for that one. Uh, another one where there is a pretty decent case against them would be the case of Jake Green and Mabel Manley who went missing in March of 1972 from the Bigger Jigger Number 2 Tavern in Kansas City. Now, Jake was 69. He basically worked as a janitor at the bar. Mabel was 68, and she worked as a barmaid there. She'd been a barmaid there for about 20 years. So she was pretty well-known and loved at that business and among its patrons. Uh, They were last seen about 12.45 in the morning on uh, March 1st, 1972. And the, and the last person to see them was the owner of the bar and their employer, Anthony Accurso. Next day, the tavern was found empty and unlocked, and about $96 was missing from the cash register. However, Mabel's purse, which still had about $40 in it, was found on the floor behind the bar. And frankly, that kind of sloppiness right there kind of sounds like the McCrary Taylor's clan. Uh, it really does. That sounds exactly like the idiotic stuff that... Uh, would happen to McCrary and Taylor where they're so focused on the cash register that they miss out on a bigger take by not being detail-oriented. And then unfortunately, shortly thereafter, the bodies of Mabel 
and Jake were found in a ditch on the edge of town. Both of them had been shot in the back of the head. Uh, Mabel and Jake were both uh, older people, and therefore I believe they could have been seen by McCrary and Taylor as being weaker and more vulnerable. And I think the McCrary-Taylor clan really loved to prey on the weak and the vulnerable. Yeah, and this is a retail business. Uh, This is a robbery that leads to an abduction from the site and murder uh, with gunshots, you know, to the head. This sounds very familiar. This sounds very much within uh, McCrary and Taylor's uh, modus operandi. Um, I would be curious to know more about what happened with the ballistic tests with these, with these, uh, with this case. Was it was it something different? Was it a firearm that didn't match what we know McCrary and Taylor to have? To me, that wouldn't really rule them out because, you know, you can borrow a gun, you can get another gun. But we do know that McCrary very much cherished his firearm, so it would have been, you know, definitely a little bit unusual for him to switch it up. But um, to me, on the surface, this certainly looks like one of theirs. Um, It's not, to me, as slam dunk as the Florida case, just because we don't have that witness saying, I saw this guy here. So um, that leaves a little more wiggle room for me that it's another... uh, you know, perpetrator or perpetrators. But generally, I feel comfortable saying, based on what we know, this was likely them. January 1972, after many months on the road and many thousands of miles logged on their murderous spree, the McCrary-Taylor clan is starting to unspool. It's getting harder and harder to maintain this escapade of terror and mayhem. Stress, family friction, and the endless highway have taken a toll. They've passed about as many bad checks as they can, run all of Liz McCrary's credit cards into the ground, and their robberies are bringing in less than they need to scrape by. And on top of it all, Sherman is deep in the hole with his alcoholism, blowing thousands on whiskey and putting everybody at risk with his unpredictable behavior. Carl even fantasizes about bumping his father-in-law off. Like I say, the biggest problem I had was if I shoot Sherman, you know, how do I clean it up to my wife and to Liz? By this time, I'm I'm so hung up on my wife that uh, there ain't no way I'm wanting to leave her because her and the kids is all. They're all I care about. And that's all I'm thinking of. So if I just out, out and waste them, what kind of cleanup have I got to get when I get back? Uh, I tried. It wasn't a conscious effort, but I tried to cut things close enough that maybe we might be in for a shootout with the cops and Sherman would be taken care of. We got all these mouths to feed. And if you think about it, even in 1970, think about two carloads of people pulling at least one bobtail trailer full of shit, driving around the country, living in motels, albeit crappy motels, but yet motels, eating out, quote-unquote, all their meals. They're, they're not cooking meals. They're, they're living in motel rooms. Even in 1970s dollars, that was, that was an expensive lifestyle. It was never enough. But the problem is that there was never enough money because they spent it so fast. I tell you, I'm kind of funny about this. Ginger would say I'm tight-fisted as hell, and I don't care how I get the money, whether I'm working for it, whether I'm stealing it. The fact is, I don't like to... I pay my bills, and I buy what I have to buy. Otherwise, I keep it. 
The McCrary Taylors were committing robbery after robbery over their long trek, but being on the road is a financial drain. The family bought new clothes, wore them once, and threw them away. Expensive appliances and TVs were routinely chucked to the side of the road to keep their load light. They would rent or buy a car or truck, ditch it, then buy or rent another. From Texas to Utah, Utah to Nevada, to Colorado, back to Texas, and on to Florida, Missouri, Canada, Oregon. They covered thousands of miles and had nothing to show for it. For what? For what? Joe Moylan is a public information officer for the Weld County Sheriff's Office in Colorado. Well, there's definitely no bads. I mean, I think before before um, Carl and Ginger met, um, I believe I saw some reporting about how um, uh, Sherman, in, in his uh, desperation to, to make ends meet and provide for his family because he wasn't, you know, very good at holding down the most menial jobs. He, he started working for a tra- traveling carnival. Um, so I think it's just kind of in their nature. Um, I don't want to give them too much credit that that it was that it was conscious that they were trying to cover their tracks, but I think it's just part of their nature um, of just who they were. They, they, they it seemed like, um, you know, Sherman just got that itch. Um, obviously, if you've committed a murder, you'll try to create some space, but um, overall, I think it's just kind of who they were. And so, in February of 1972, with the wheels coming off the caravan, the McCrary-Taylor family moved to a quiet town in Southern California and switched gears. Out of nowhere, the murders stopped. After the killing of Cynthia Glass, Carl and Sherman refocused their efforts on robberies, big ones like supermarkets and gas stations. Bigger scores, less murder and mayhem. Makes sense, right? Uh, the, the, the only way that we that we tied the one up in uh, up in Portland uh, was because they were living there at the time. A girl came out of the store in Portland, and the body found across the river in uh, in Washington. I, it always kind of surprised me that that after they went to California, we, we never did understand why they stopped. Um, and it, it always struck me that maybe the women had had enough of it. I mean, they knew what these guys were doing. Maybe they'd kind of had enough of this, you know, kidnapping, raping, and murdering these young women. And basically, you know, maybe maybe laid the law down or something and said, "Hey, look, you know, you need to be you need to be feeding us. You need to go back to doing what you do: the armed robberies, the supermarkets." You know, leave, leave your fantasies to the side of the road and go back to bringing the money in. I don't know. But it all, it, it's, that's the strange thing that struck me was that, they, that, that the thing with kidnapping, raping, and murdering the women just came to a stop. This takes us up to June 6, 1972. Goleta, California, a suburb of Santa Barbara. Carl Taylor, suspected of robbery, kidnapping, and murder in several states across the U.S., sets his sights on knocking over Giordano's, a supermarket on a suburban street in Bucolic, Santa Barbara, California. With his world caving in, Carl's hope is for a big score that will allow him to lay low for a while until the heat cools off. Here's Joe Moylan again. Very quickly, uh, Sherman and Carl start casing businesses to rob um, and they rob two grocery stores in pretty quick succession after they arrive uh, in California in Goleta 
they net twelve thousand bucks in their first robbery, and they net twenty two thousand in their uh, in their second one. And you know, for for comparison to today, that's seventy seven thousand bucks and one hundred forty eight thousand bucks. So so they nearly net in uh, in in two crimes in two robberies, uh, almost a quarter of a million bucks right right off the bat when they get there. But now Carl decides to break free from Sherman, his partner in crime, and hit the Giordano supermarket on his own. And everything that can go wrong does. Eventually, Carl just decides, you know, I'm gonna go, I'm gonna go out on one more, uh, one more job. Um, you know, if he can net, um, you know, ten, twelve, twenty thousand bucks on his own and keep it for himself, you know, he, he's thinking that that's gonna set him up for for a good long while and. And he goes off to commit this robbery on his own. He makes a, a bunch of mistakes in, in the process. He goes during broad daylight uh, to Giordano supermarket. It is packed when he gets there. Um, he, a- he walks kind of aimlessly around the store and, and up and down the aisles for, for a long time. He starts drawing attention from people like, you know, who's this creepy guy with the hair lip? He's kind of cruising around the store. I believe he was looking, trying to find the manager's office so he could find the safe. But ultimately, he just goes up to a store employee, sticks a gun in their side, and says, take me, take me to the manager's office, take me to the safe. Anya Kane and Kevin Greenlee. Carl Taylor went into the Giordano supermarket and approached uh, the assistant manager, a man named Howard Hogue, who was standing by the safe. And Taylor said, I want all the money in that safe. Uh, Hogue noticed that uh, Taylor had a gun and uh, he also said that Taylor looked a bit like a hick. He said Taylor had a speech impediment but the gun meant that he was pretty serious. Uh, The problem was Hogue couldn't open up the safe so he called the manager over, a man named John Herman. Herman comes over, Taylor shows Herman that he has a gun and Taylor says to Herman, you see this? Open up the safe. I want it all. So Herman opens up the safe and gives Taylor almost all the money in the safe and then closes the safe. At this point, Taylor says, let's go down the line of all the cash registers and clean out all the money in all the cash registers. So they start doing that. They go to one of the cash registers, which is manned by a gentleman named Jim Kogan. And uh, Herman has Kogan put the money in the cash register in in a bag that Taylor has. And then as Taylor moves to the next register, Herman mutters under his breath, you know, this is a robbery. Why don't you slip away and call the police? So as they go down to the next cash register, Kogan slips away. Uh, He comes back a moment or so later, makes eye contact with Herman and which Herman interprets as meaning, okay, the police have been called. So at this point, they continue to empty out the cash registers. Herman is trying to make the process go as slowly as possible in order to maximize the chance that a police officer will arrive. So basically, after Taylor has gotten his fill of this money, he warns the employees, don't anyone leave or you're dead. It's one of the things that in a robbery, just like any other job, you have certain things you can do and certain things you don't do. And you get it down to a science. 
Three minutes. Never more than three minutes. And there's the door from the time you walk through the door till the time you walk out of it. You spend more than three minutes in that store, you're asking to get busted. I got a sack of money on my side. I got it under my arm like a big bag of groceries walking along there, you know. And I had my pistol underneath my shirt in the back. And after a while, you get to where you get a six cents with the police. Most things you can smell them a mile away. Uh, I'm walking down the side of the store. I'm hearing my back of my neck just started, you know, raising up. Despite his rather bumbling robbery, Carl hauled in about three grand, roughly $20,000 today. And then he proceeds to flee the store. Now at this point, the first police officer arrives on the scene. This is a patrolman named Dennis Huddle. Officer Huddle had been patrolling nearby when the uh, information came out from dispatch that there was a robbery there. The man speaking is Don Williams, a retired lieutenant with the Santa Barbara Police Department who worked this robbery in 1972. So he pulled up in front of the store, got out with a shotgun, and Taylor came running out with a gun in one hand and a sack full of money in the other. And he spotted the huddle, and there were several customers just entering the store. So he took advantage of that and turned and ran through the parking lot and then into a residential area. Dennis was following him and Taylor went around the corner of an apartment house and went up the outside steps onto the balcony. And when Dennis came around, he looked up and Taylor shot him in the head. Here's Detective Fanchuli again. Carl comes out, sees Dennis Huddle in the police car, walks over, shoots him in the head, runs over, jumps into his car. The car's not running and the keys are gone. Now he has to find a car. Meanwhile, the bag boy, the shopping cart collector kid, comes out of the store and sees what's happened to Dennis Huddle, sees Carl running across the parking lot reaches in and grabs the shotgun out of the police officer's car and starts firing at Carl in the parking lot of the grocery store. Carl grabs the first person who comes along, pulls them out of their car, jumps into his car, and takes off. To be continued. Next week on the powerful season finale of Families Who Kill, the Donut Shop Murders. After the botched robbery, the vice tightens around the McCrary's. You know, Brooks calls me into the office and he says, you've got to go to California. You've got to go to San Quentin. You've got to do something, but you've got to get Carl Taylor back here. And if you don't come back with him, don't come back. And Finchuli must haul some dangerous human cargo. We stopped outside of the gates. And Carl was, you know, chained up in the back seat, and I was in the passenger seat, and Willard was in the driver's seat. And we basically said to Carl, you know, either you behave and you do what you're told, or we'll shoot you right here if you try to escape. Facing justice, the ruthless criminal duo totally unravels. In classic form, as soon as they were caught and the jig was up, they, they started deflecting and blaming, blaming each other. 
It's all leading up to the trial of the century where Carl has a plan of his own. I've done it. I did it to a psychiatrist and to a psychologist. I was declared insane by both of those men. Don't miss the season finale of Families Who Kill, The Donut Shop Murders. Families Who Kill, The Donut Shop Murders is a production of Trooper Entertainment and Wondery. It is executive produced by Dave Kaplan, Randy Tatt, and Alan Weeder. Written by Alan Weeder. Co-executive produced, narrated, and edited by James Carroll. Supervising producer is Michael Wiley. Consulting producer is Detective Joe Finchuli. Ethan Darbone is the voice of Carl Taylor. Special thanks to Mark Turner and A3 Artists Agency. Mixed and mastered by Wildwoods Picture and Sound. Theme song and scoring is by Nick O'Leary and Hush Empire. Additional music is from the Jingle Punks Library. Additional production by Lily Williner. Cover art by Teenage Stepdad. If you have questions or information about the McCrary case, feel free to email us at donutshopmurders at gmail.com. It helps a lot when you subscribe, rate, and review the podcast you enjoy. Thank you for your support. 